thank you. Turn with me to First Peter. You've heard that for a few weeks. You'll hear it for a number of weeks yet. First Peter, as we're in a series of sermons through this um, very interesting and important uh, book of the Bible, First Peter chapter two, this morning, and we're going to look at verses eleven and twelve. First Peter chapter two. Our focus this morning is on the power of a godly life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Where the word of God says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Again, that is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for another time together with your people. A time to, to sing hymns and songs of praise to you. A time together to pray to you. A time to confess our faith and to read your word together. And now a time to study it together. I pray your blessing upon all that we do. That you would take what we've already done in worship. Prepare our hearts through it for what we're about to experience. And I pray that you would teach us from your word. That the Holy Spirit would be here to be our helper. That he would open our eyes to see your truth, our ears to hear it, and our hearts to receive it. And would you give us grace to apply it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I can still remember uh, the anxiety I felt sometimes when I would bring my report card home from school. I guess they still do that. Maybe they do all that online. I don't know, but... You know, when I was in school, we had to, every nine weeks, maybe it was six weeks, we had to take our report card home, show it to our parents, get our parents to sign it, and then bring it back to the teacher. Sometimes I was happy to bring them home, but other times I dreaded it. Uh, didn't want my parents to see them at all. You know, not only were there on these report cards columns for grades in the academic subjects like reading and spelling and writing and math. But there was also a place for conduct. And to be honest, my parents were more concerned about my grade and conduct than they were any grade in any academic subject. They would tolerate a low grade in, in some academic area far more than they would a low grade in conduct. They'd always tell me this. You know, there's certain things your parents told you that you that you'd never forget. You know, Steve was teaching about Proverbs this morning, a few kind of proverbial sayings that my parents told me I just had never forgotten. One my mother this is unrelated, but one my mother told me I've never forgotten. I've used it over and over again with my own children, that is son. When there was something I had to do I didn't want to do. Son, there's just some things in life you have to do that you don't want to do. They also told me in regard to school, 
you might not be able to do well on a math test or spell, but you can behave. You see, my, my, my teachers were observing and grading my conduct. Suppose you knew that God was observing and grading your conduct. How would that change the way that you live? You know, there is a sense in which he does that. You know, there is a sense in which God does evaluate your life by the way that you live. Now, he doesn't base your salvation on it because salvation is all of grace. But in the end, he will determine your rewards on it. You see, God is concerned, and he's looking. He's observing every day to see your life and where your priorities are, what your values are, if your life is a life of obedience or a life of disobedience. But, but God's not the only one watching. The world watches too. Your life as a Christian is to make a difference in the part of the world where you live. Your life is to be a light that shines in the darkness. One reason we sang, shine, Jesus, shine. Shine through me. You see, your life is to be a light that shines in the darkness. And the degree to which your life is in obedience to the book, and obedience to God's word will determine how brightly that light shines. And the degree to which your life will make an impact in the lives of those around you. You see, the brighter your light shines, the more Jesus shines through you, the more influence you'll have in the lives of those you deal with every day. As I mentioned a moment ago, my sermon this morning is entitled The Power of a Godly Life. And I gave it that title because in these two verses, Peter deals with the way that our behavior influences unbelievers who observe the way we live. You see, your life of obedience can be a powerful gospel tool that shows unbelievers their need for Christ. Well, how do you accomplish that? How do you make sure that your life is a tool for good? I'm going to try to answer that and give you three ways from this text this morning. First, it's by understanding your place in the world. You know, last week from uh, verses 9 and 10, uh, my sermon focused on your spiritual identity or who you are in Christ. And I said then that it's so important that you understand that. So important you understand your spiritual identity, who you are as a believer. And we saw there in those two verses that you are chosen by God to be His child. That you are a priest to the King, serving Him, having direct access to Him. That you are holy to the Lord. And you are holy before the Lord and are to live a life of holiness before the Lord. We saw that you belong to God. 
You're possessed by Him. We saw that you've been called by God. Called out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we saw there that you have received mercy or pity from God. So that your sins can be forgiven. And I hope you see how that transforms your understanding of yourself. Your view of yourself, especially in light of your relationship to God. It gives you a wonderful sense of confidence and assurance to know that God has indeed initiated a relationship with you. And that God has done whatever it has taken to establish a relationship with you. And that God, by His grace and His faithfulness, maintains a relationship with you. Well, Peter continues that same focus, I think, here in verse 11, where he addresses, addresses those to whom he's writing as beloved. Now, the point here is not just that Peter loved them, even though I'm sure that was true, but that God loved them. They were beloved. Loved by God. Loved by God's unconditional love. Recipients of all that it means to be loved by God. They are beloved. Think about that for just a moment. That description doesn't just apply to believers then, it applies to believers today. We are beloved by God. You are beloved by God. And we ought never forget that God loves us. And His love is the basis for all that He does for us in pouring out both material and spiritual blessings on our lives. And that God's love doesn't fluctuate. Doesn't change based on whether or not you're having a bad day. Or how you're living your life. God's love is unconditional and it's unchangeable. Beloved, this message is for you. But it's also important not just to grasp your your place in relationship with God, but also in relationship to the world. And, And here Peter addresses us as aliens and strangers. You know, we saw the same idea expressed back in chapter 1, verse 1, where he was identifying those to whom he was writing this letter in the historical context. And there he described them as aliens and strangers. There were people that were living in a land that was not their own. They were living in a culture or cultures to which they were not accustomed. That was a physical reference to literal aliens in a country. Here is more symbolic in our text this morning. Where Peter says we are aliens in this world. Our physical citizenship is in this country. But our real citizenship is in heaven. We live here. But our true home is there. We're obligated, folks, to keep the laws of the state... But our true allegiance is to the law of God. We are aliens here. We're just here for a time, waiting to get to our real home in heaven. And that's an important part of living effectively as a believer, understanding that truth 
you need to realize this place is not your home. In fact, we are strangers in it and we are to be distinct from it. You know, Paul said flat out, do not be conformed to this world. Jesus said, seek first, what? The kingdom of God. Our heavenly kingdom is to be our first priority. And we are to avoid living like the world and adopting its values and its priorities and its way of life. And the more you grasp that, the easier it will be for you to have the right perspective or as we say today, to have your head in the right place and respond properly to what you see going on around you. Now, I want you to understand, you enjoy the blessings of the world. You make a contribution to the world. Wherever it is, God has placed you. But you must realize there's a higher, greater, and better world to which you belong and your true allegiance and devotion belong there. And so you must understand your place in the world, beloved by God, but a stranger, an alien here in this world. A second way you make sure your life is used for good is by avoiding sinful behavior. Now, understanding the first point, that is, your place in the world will help you realize and keep the second point, which is avoiding a sinful lifestyle. What the text says is this. Beloved, I urge you, this is something important. I urge you, he says, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Two important things there I want you to see. One is the simple command, abstain from fleshly lusts. You know, when we were brought to Christ, the Bible says new things happen to us. We, we're given new life. In us, all things become new. We become new creatures. That's the result of being what the Bible calls born again. You're given the ability to choose obedience over disobedience. To choose righteousness over unrighteousness. To choose holiness over unholiness. You see, unbelievers aren't able to do that. You realize that everything an unbeliever does, even when they're trying to do good things, are displeasing in God's eyes because they do it with the wrong motive. That is to serve self and not to serve God. That's why in the Bible, God says that even the plowing of the wicked is sin. But as believers, we can and should avoid what displeases God and choose what pleases Him. In particular, Peter says here that we are to avoid sinful lusts. Now normally, or fleshly lusts, normally we think of lust in terms of sexual sin. And it certainly includes that, but here it's not limited to that. Notice the word is in the plural. It encompasses the full range of of sinful behavior that characterizes the life of an unbeliever rather than the life of a believer. It might be that you struggle 
with sexual sin. But it might be that you struggle with a lust for food, which leads to gluttony. It might be a lust for power that leads to envy. It might be a lust for something that belongs to someone else that leads to jealousy. It might be a lust for a life of ease that leads to laziness. It might be a lust for alcohol that leads to drunkenness. It might be a lust for position or influence that can lead to disputes and factions. You see, that's how Paul describes the lusts of the flesh or the deeds of the flesh, as he calls them, in Galatians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to Galatians chapter 5 for just a moment, we're going to be looking at a number of other texts here for just a moment. Galatians chapter 5, we spend a lot of time on the fruit of the Spirit at the end of Galatians 5, and we forget sometimes they're in contrast to what the Bible calls the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, here we go, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities. We think those are pretty bad things, don't we? But it gets a little more personal. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. If you wonder what Peter's talking about when he refers to the lust of the flesh, this is it. And even Paul's description here in Galatians 5 is not comprehensive because he ends that long list by saying, and things like these includes anything that is displeasing to God, contrary to His holy nature or to His moral law. The other thing I want you to notice is that these fleshly lusts, Peter says, wage war against the soul. They wage war against your soul. And that's one of those little Bible phrases that packs a powerful punch. We dare not pass over to it quickly. To live the Christian life effectively, you must remember that you are in a war. The problem is, many times when we think about this war, this spiritual battle in which we are engaged, we think too much about the external enemy. And not enough about the internal enemy that is our own flesh. We think somehow that the struggle really is out there. When many times the struggle really is not there at all. But it's here. You go with me to 1 John chapter 2. Just flip over a couple of pages in your Bible. 1 John chapter 2. verses 15 and 16 where God tells us this do not love the world nor the things in the world 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You see, there the Word of God makes it clear that when we talk about the world as our enemy, it's not just the world out there, but it's the world in here. It is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But it's more personal than that. It's the lust of my eyes. The lust of my flesh. And my boastful pride of life. You see, I am many times my own worst enemy. Because I had these sinful lusts and desires and they literally wage war against my soul. In Ephesians chapter 6, if you turn there for me, with me just a moment. That's where Paul gives us that great description of the spiritual warfare in which we're engaged and talks about the importance of putting on uh, the full armor of God that we might be able to resist and fight and be victorious. And he talks there about us struggling against the schemes of the devil. And what we fail to realize many times is that some of the most devastating schemes the devil uses are our own sinful lusts and desires. Look at Ephesians 6 verse 12. For our struggle, let me start verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We feel we face a real spiritual enemy, and we are engaged in a real spiritual war. And the greatest and most powerful tool Satan often uses in that war is your own sinful desires. You know, the Apostle Paul knew what it was to be in that war firsthand. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 7. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Romans 7. It's where Paul describes his own frustration in not being able to win that daily battle any better than he could. Look at verse 15, Romans seven fifteen. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. Then verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin, which dwells in me. And then look down at verse 18 through 23. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, all right, refers to the lust of the flesh. Nothing good dwells in my flesh, for the willing of the pre- good, the, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil 
that I do not want. But if I'm the very one, if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, then I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin, those fleshly lusts, as Peter describes them, which dwell in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. Listen to this. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. You can't find a more accurate description of what Peter talks about when he refers to the lust of the flesh waging war against our souls than what Paul describes of himself in Romans 7. But I want you to notice something. Romans 7, the passage I read, can be very depressing. You almost want to throw your hands up in, in despair. But I want you to see that even though Paul felt that frustration... And the pain, the personal pain of not being able to do what his heart really wanted to do. That he knew that the victory was secure. He expresses that despair in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And the answer is, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Even though he had the personal frustration of it, he also had the confidence that Christ had achieved the victory for him. You see, it's as we put on the full armor of God. It's as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's as we we walk in the Spirit and the light of Jesus that we can win this war against our fleshly lusts. And there's a third a third way you can make sure that your life is used for good. And, and that's by living the right way. We looked at the negative side in verse 11. And now we see the uh, positive side in verse 12. Where Peter says this. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Or among unbelievers. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers... They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Again, we see that a guided life makes a powerful statement to a watching world. Now, as we saw last week in verse 9, it's as you live out your life of faith. As you live out who you are in Christ, that you glorify God. And praise him both by what you do and by what you say. But it's not just a means of glorifying God. A guided life is a witness. It's a witness. A powerful gospel tool in the lives of unbelievers. And we see here in verse 12 it does three things. One is that it silences their criticism. Unbelievers love to criticize Believers, And the primary criticism that unbelievers poke at believers is what? It's our hypocrisy. The fact that we say one thing and we do another. We teach that and we live this. You see, it's as we 
How does it go? Is, is as we walk the talk? As we do what we say? That it silences the critics who love to poke holes in our testimony and diminish the power of the gospel in our lives. A second thing your excellent behavior does is that it points unbelievers to Christ and it aids in their conversion. Now, no one can be converted by watching your life. You hear me? No one can be converted simply by watching your life or the way that you live. But God can use your life to arouse their interest in spiritual things so that they begin to seek the things of Christ through the moving of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. It can cause them to go to the Bible and and try to find out some answers about your life and, and the way you live. It can cause them to wander into a church somewhere to to hear the word preached, to find out about the gospel. Or it might lead them to to sit down with someone, maybe you, to, to talk about how to become a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. You see, as the text says, it's as they see your good deeds and observe them that the Holy Spirit can move in their hearts and cause them to seek the Lord. And then there's still another thing your behavior does. And that's it leads them to glorify God. It refers at the end of the verse to the day of visitation. I believe that's the day of conversion when the Holy Spirit visits in power to bring them to saving faith. In that, God is glorified. The believer, or the unbeliever, who now is a believer both gives glory to God and glorifies God. He gives glory to God because of what God has done for him and saving him from his sins. He glorifies God in the way that he lives and the difference that Christ makes to him. And so my question as I conclude this morning is, do you want your life to make a difference in your part of the world? Wherever it is God places you every day, do you want your life really to make a difference in the lives of the people with whom you come in contact? Peter gives you three things here that you can do. One is understand your place in the world. Second is avoid sinful behavior. And the third is pursue a godly life. What's true individually is true corporately, isn't it? After all, we are the church. When we talk about North Point Presbyterian Church, we're talking about these folks right here. You go up the road and you go to our friends at North Park Church, it's those folks in that church. We are the church. What is true of us individually is true of us corporately. So the question we ask is not just how how can my life make a difference, but how can we make a difference? How can North Point, as a church, as a body of believers, have a a greater impact? It's the same way, folks. It's by understanding our place in the world. It's by avoiding sinful behavior and pursuing a godly life. God help us individually and corporately to 
achieve that. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. You're a faithful God, a good God, who gives us so much to enjoy in life, the blessings that are ours from you. Father, help us to use them for good. Help us to live our lives for good, that our lives might influence those around us, that we might see men and women, boys and girls who don't trust in you do just that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.